freedom from fear. And if anybody needed to be freed from fear, it was Michael Franzese. I mean, can you imagine being one of the high up people in the mafia and turning state's evidence and walking away? Now, he actually had to serve prison time for what he did. But uh, today, he's a born-again Christian. Uh, Tom Prokaw actually called Michael Francis the prince of the mafia. And so he'll be here preaching next week and speaking next week. You don't want to miss it. Make sure and bring a friend. But uh, you're going to hear about a man who's freed from fear. Today, we want to make sure that happens for us. Let's go to God right now. Lord, we pray that you're going to speak in our hearts, that you're going to help us to understand, Lord, what happens when we open up to your presence, to your promises, to your power, and how it brings a peace that passes understanding. Guide us, guard us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I just read about a a family that really did this uh, last Thanksgiving, a year ago's Thanksgiving. What happened is uh, uh, the, the daughter who was now married, was hosting Thanksgiving. And she was already fairly gullible, a little bit flighty. And she was so nervous about hosting for the family. So her mom decided she wanted to play a joke on her. So the night before, she cooked a Cornish game hen. And then what happened is they got there about an hour and a half before the dinner. And and, and the mom said, oh my gosh, I forgot. And she named something at the store. And the daughter's like, no, mom, I can't go get it. I'm cooking the turkeys in the oven. The mom goes, I'll watch the turkey. Please, you got to go for me. I mean, please, can you? And her husband was in on it. So he said, come on, we'll do this for your mom. So they run to the store. While they're running to the store, the mom takes the turkey out of the oven. She takes the dressing out and she stuffs the Cornish game hen in and puts the dressing back. So then what happened? The daughter comes not knowing any of this and it comes time for the dinner. So what happens is they get out the turkey. She starts taking out the stuffing and then she she hits something and pulls out the Cornish game hen. And the mom goes, oh my gosh, you cooked a pregnant bird. The daughter starts to cry and they're going, no, 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 no. It was a joke. She goes, no, no, it's the baby. The mom goes, no, the the turkeys lay eggs. Come on. And she's like, no. And she's crying. I killed the baby bird. And she goes, come on. They don't like, like when you pluck the outer bird, it doesn't pluck the inner one, you know? And uh, anyway, so try that one next year. You know what is, uh, uh, a lot of times in life, uh, we find ourselves motivated by something. Uh, my son, Rich, interestingly, uh, uh, he teaches at Syracuse University, and it's kind of interesting, back at Syracuse, when people walk home, they actually walk through this huge cemetery. I mean, at night. It's not all that well lit. I remember watching it happen, and I even thought, wow, well, it reminded me of a story I heard where a man one night was living back east, and he was walking home, and he made a shortcut through the cemetery, But it was extremely dark and the lights were out and all of a sudden he trips and he tumbles into a grave. Now he's laying in a fresh dug grave. It's cold, it's moist. He gets up. For some reason they dug this one especially deep. He jumps and tries to grab the edge but because the ground is moist it just peels back and he can't get out. He jumps again and he can't get out. He jumps again and he can't get out. Finally he's realized I'm not going to get out of here tomorrow. I'm going to have to wait for him to rescue me. So he goes and sits in the corner, in the dark corner of the back of this grave. It's a short time later when he hears a boom. And he looks up and he sees a man get up and the man looks around and he leaps and tries to get out. He leaps and tries to get out. And then the man in the back corner in the darkness says, you'll never get out of here. (laughs) And he does. He's out in a second. He's gone, man. (laughs) Fear is very often a motivator. It almost always turns out negative when it's the motivation. 
It almost never does any good. And so that's why 365 times in the Bible, God says, do not be afraid. One time for every single day of the week and the month and the year, God says, don't be afraid. I don't want you to be afraid. God's great call is for us to be people of courage. Why? Because fear robs us. It robs our health. It robs our our emotional well-being. It it robs our ability to have great relationships. It keeps us from being effective in life. And are you ready for this? It doesn't help us deal with the problem at hand. Fear and worry almost always create something negative in our life. So God says, don't do it. Uh, Jesus warned us there's a thief that comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. That's what it says in John chapter 10, verse 10. But then he goes on to say, but I have come that you might have life and life abundantly. This thief, God tells us, is, tries to keep us in bondage through fear. Fear of circumstances. By the way, 1 Corinthians 15 says even the fear of death. But when you and I become into a relationship with God, we don't even need to fear death. That's what you're going to see when we look at Hebrews in a minute. Jesus also said something else in John 8, 31 and 32. He says, if you continue in my word, you will be my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We want to dig into God's word so we can understand the truth and be set free from it and not allow things to plague us, not allow things to keep us from living the life that God wants us to have. That's God's great desire. And look what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. And there's an amazing word that starts out verse one, and it's the word therefore. Now, whenever you study the Bible, and we say this all the time, whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. Get it? Therefore, therefore. And uh, you want to ask that question. What is he saying? Well, notice the context before we read on. Uh, Hebrews is written to a group of people who were Christians and they were Jewish Christians. But they were living at a time when the persecution of Christianity was on the rise. People were being arrested for their faith. Some were being tortured. Some were being killed. Almost all were being literally uh, punished by having all their goods removed from them. Interestingly, the Roman government had decided that it was okay to be Jewish, but not okay to be Christian. And so these Jewish Christians were thinking about just saying or even say or, or even doing the idea of leaving Christianity, go back to Judaism, so they wouldn't have to lose out. But the writer of Hebrews says it's not worth it. It's not worth it based on your fear and even what could happen to you to give up the incredible treasure of what it means to know Jesus Christ. It's not worth it because what you're turning back to was only something that was meant to point you to Christ. And Jesus is greater than the law. And Jesus is greater than Moses. And and Jesus is greater than the Levitical priesthood. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And he's warning them, don't do it. Don't turn away. Don't give up something so great. Something so incredible like a relationship with Christ. Just to protect yourself. It's not worth it. So after he builds this argument, he comes to Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about faith. And it calls out an idea that everybody needed to lock into, which we call the hall of fame of faith, where they go through people like Moses, who gave up living in the courts of Pharaoh to, to grab hold of a relationship with God. And he ended up having a greater life. It talked about Rahab, who gave up the the present safety of the moment to embrace what it meant to have a relationship with God. And she went on to have a greater life. And then it even says, because the Bible is very practical, that not everybody lived through it. Some were killed. One man was actually put into a log and sawn in two, which was probably Isaiah, by the way. 
Uh, they gave everything for God, but in the end, they get something greater. And by the way, they are the hall of fame people. They're the heroes of faith. So he goes, therefore, knowing that don't give up, don't let fear drive you from a passionate life with God and the life you're meant to live. Don't let it let you turn back. And then it says, who are you to focus on most? Look what it says in 12 verse one. It says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Look at Jesus. Focus on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He said, when you look at what Jesus did and how he lived, that he had no sin in his life. And and we understand that we should lay aside every sin in everything that encumbers us, including fear, so that we might live the life that God has for us to live. Why? Because God's great desire is for us to understand that the things he tells us to stay away from, sin and fear, will in the end rob us of everything that matters in life. He doesn't want us to be robbed. He wants you to live the abundant life. He wants you to live the exciting life. And it says, look at Jesus. Don't miss who Jesus is. And then I want you to go down at verse 12. Now notice how verse 12 goes. Therefore, and by the way, what we skipped was the section that says, God is your father and God treats you as a child. So knowing who Jesus is, knowing God as a father who treats you as his child. Therefore, look what it says. Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Now, now that last line's incredible, and we're going to understand the context of it in a moment, but notice the beginning. He says, I don't want you to tense up. I don't want you to have knees that shake. I don't want you to have bodies that tremble with fear. I want you to be people who are strong and resilient and never give up. He says, that's who I want you to be. Even though you might face death. By the way, what else they faced in that time period were people called the 10 percenters. The Roman government had passed a law back then that said that if you found someone who was worshiping Jesus, you could get 10% of everything they owned by turning them in. I mean, that could be pretty lucrative. Think about it today. If all we had to do was go out and find Christians and, and then have their homes seized, you got 10% of the value of their home, 10% of everything they own. And so people were suffering that way. And he said, I don't want you though, based on fear to run from Christ or to run from this life that's so amazing. It's worth it. It's worth hanging in. I don't want fear to be your motivator. Therefore, don't tremble with fear. Don't, don't be afraid of what you're facing. Don't be afraid of what could come upon you. Face it. And be strong and stand tall and walk tall. That's what he says I want you to do. Now we need to be people who are that way. It's interesting. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Zephaniah chapter one, verse 12, where God says, I'm going to search the city of Jerusalem and find anybody who's stagnant in spirit, who's not living with passion. What is God calling you and I to do? You just go and stand. And if you have a trial before you, you face it. And if there's a fear that's there, you conquer it and don't let anything keep you from it. Uh, when I was first learning to play football, one of the things they taught us, and all of you who play football know this, is don't tense up. Don't tense up. Now, why? Someone throws you the ball and you're coming around and all of a sudden, you know, you see you're about to get hit by somebody. When you tense up, what happens is you find yourself more likely to get hurt than you would be if you just run through it. 
Think about it. When you tense your body and boom, when you get hit, then, then by the way, the likelihood of injury is far greater. And so coaches will even tell you this, rather than tensing up, if you've got the ball and you're coming around and someone's coming at you, you hit them harder than they're going to hit you. Now, I, I don't know that I was ever a great football player, but I got to say, I love that part of it. When I was playing halfback and they threw me the ball and I knew I was about to get hit, I thought I might as well lay into the guy. Man, and you just nail him. And hopefully you hurt them. And, and, you know, God says, that's how I want you to be. I don't want you to tense up. I don't want you to run from it. Could you imagine if you were watching football uh, this weekend and all of a sudden you looked and, and you saw one of the halfbacks come around the line and boom, he gets hit and he gets up and throws his helmet. And on somehow on the, that you're able to hear him say, if you're going to keep tackling me, I'm not going to play this game anymore. You'd be like, what? If you're in football, you expect to get hit. Could you imagine someone goes out the box, boom, they get hit. Oh, if you're going to punch me, I'm, I'm out of here. You know what? Are you ready? Life, you're going to get punched. Life, you're going to get hit. Don't run from it. Rise up. Strengthen the hands. Be strong. Don't let anything stop you. But it just seems like so often fear is what stops us. I mean, fear is what can get to us. I don't know what you're afraid of. But I can tell you one thing I'm afraid of is needles. Anybody else here afraid of needles? Anybody? I mean, I, I can't. You know what? I remember one time I was at the dentist. They go, got to give you a shot. I said, no, do the procedure without it. <laughs> rather than getting that little needle, I'd rather have them, you know, go in. And, and I don't know why that is. I mean, I'm that way. Matter of fact, uh, one time, Pam and I were in a really, really bad car accident. Matter of fact, Dale Borgen, who was on staff, was in it too. And none of us were wearing our seatbelts. This was years ago before we knew better and, and should have anyway. And man, we, uh, I was going 50 miles an hour. A lady pulled out, stopped right in front of me. Pow, we hit. I mean, Pam goes and hits the windshield. I go hit the windshield. Uh, Tony Almaslecker, who was with us, used to be on staff here in Dale. They hit hard and they're hurt. And, and man, we're, we're recovering. Pam's bleeding. I'm bleeding. And the ambulances pull up. We're trying to make sure everybody's okay. Pam can barely move. They get her in a stretcher and put her in the ambulance. And the, 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 the EMTs walk up to me and they said, well, you were in the accident. I said, yeah. And I go, that's my wife. And they said, well, then we need to put you on a stretcher. I go, no, no, I'm, I'm okay. And they go, no, we're going to have to. And one guy grabs me by the arms tight and he pushes me. And all of a sudden there's a board against my back and they strap me and they lay me down and hop me in. And they go, are you okay? I go, not now. Then the ambulance starts to drive and it's rocking. It's rocking. The guy leans in front of me and holds a needle over my face and goes, I've got to stick this in your arm. And I looked and said, no, don't stick that. And there's like, oh, with a needle, you know. And, and I go, don't stick that in my arm. He goes, oh, I have to. <laughs> and I thought, you know, Lord, if you had me in the accident to witness to him, forget it. He can go, you know. And uh, <laughs> Needles. The other day I went to Kaiser to get a blood test. I'd been putting it off. So I go in and I thought, I just don't want to get stuck. And as I'm walking in, a lady from our church is working the flu shot table. She said, Chuck, Chuck, have you had your flu shot? I said, no. I mean, I don't want a needle, much less a dead virus in me. And uh, so I go get the blood. And I'm thinking, Lord, I've got to get over this. So I'm going to go face it. So I walk back out there. I look at her. I said, you know what? Give me that flu shot. I sat down like a man and she gave it to me. When I got up, I felt like I had conquered. Then the next day I went back to the doctor. He said, we had a problem with your test. We're going to have to draw more blood. Oh, you know, and you know what? But, but, but here's the bottom line. I, out of a fear of a needle, was staying away from something that would really help my life. How many of us do that? 
How many of us out of fear, we have our lives taken from us and ruined and we don't end up living how we live? What? Notice what it says there. It says, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet. Make sure you walk strong and walk hard and stand up straight. And if you've got a problem, you face it knowing that's where heroes are born. That's where life is lived. That's where passion is created. And we can have that. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 32 and and grab this because the last part of that says, so that that which is lame may not be dislocated. What is that referring to? It's referring to a particular story from a man named Jacob, a very real story, something that actually happened. And I want to set it up for you. Genesis 32, we'll start in verse six. Let me give you the context. Jacob, uh, uh, Isaac, or actually Abraham, Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had two sons. One was named Esau, one was named Jacob. Now Esau was a man's man. As a matter of fact, we find out he was a hunter. And we find out that he was a hairy man. As a matter of fact, Esau was so hairy that when Jacob wanted to pretend to be Esau, he put goat skin on his back and he went to their father, Isaac, whose eyes were failing. He was barely able to see. And he reached out and touched the goat skin and said, whoa, it's Esau. I mean, how hairy was this guy? You got to ask that question, right? But he was a man's man. Jacob was, a, you know, he, he, was, he loved his mom and, and he loved to cook. I mean, that's what the Bible says. I'm not making this up. Esau would have watched Bear Grill. Jacob would have watched Rachel Ray. I mean, you know, that, that's, that's what you got going on here. And so what happened is there's already a division in the family and Rebecca favors Jacob and Isaac favors Esau. Well, Jacob's smarter than Esau. So he takes advantage of him because he's a very deceptive person, a very manipulative person, not a nice guy, to be honest. And taking advantage of a time of weakness in his brother's life, he robs him of something that was really important. Then later on, he is going to take everything that matters to him by lying, by deceiving, by pretending that he's Esau. He literally goes and robs the last of what he has, everything that he has valued in life. Now, Esau is not a good guy either. And we're not going to excuse him for what he's done, but that doesn't give any right for Jacob to act how he's acted. And when he betrays his brother like that, Esau says, the day my father dies, I'll kill you. And Rebecca is so filled with fear that she's going to lose him. She actually said, this is the greatest fear of my life that I would not be able to set eyes on him. She gets Isaac to agree to send him away to relatives. And when they send him away, here's what you need to know. Her greatest fear is realize she dies before he comes home. Isaac will end up living, but she'll die before he comes home. And then during this period of time, over 14 years, Jacob prospers. He gets rich. Now, by the way, he doesn't know what Esau does too. And then he he gets ready to come home. Well, in this time, he's found God. In this time, God has promised him that he would flourish. God has promised him he would conquer. And God has promised him he would return back to his home to actually live even a greater life. God's given him all these promises. But as he's traveling home, he sends word to Esau to say, I'm coming home. And the word he gets back is that Esau's coming towards him with 400 men. Now, what would you think if you knew your brother who hated you was coming at you with 400 men? You wouldn't think he's throwing you a parade, would you? And so he thinks, I'm going to die. And notice what it says in verse 6. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and furthermore, he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. 
He was greatly afraid and distressed. Now that's not okay. He should not have reacted in fear. And reacting in fear, he's going to make some mistakes. And God is looking at him saying, I promised you something. I promised you would be taken care of. I promised you would flourish. Why would you now run from the promises of God? He should have trusted in God's presence and God's promises and God's power. Then he would have had God's peace. But instead now he's afraid. By the way, outwardly, there's every reason to be afraid. Outwardly, everything looks wrong. But what he had forgotten is he has the presence of God in his life. And he should have clung to that. You know, as a Christian, you and I, no matter what we face in life, we need to trust in God who would never leave us or forsake us. Matter of fact, Jesus said these words. Jesus said, lo, I will be with you always. I don't know if you heard about a man who got on a plane and sitting next to him was a nun. And as the plane got ready to take off, she's shaking in fear, which made him nervous. And he looked at her and said, sister, are you okay? She said, I hate to fly. And they finally took off and they leveled off. And he thought, well, now she'll be okay. Now she was more afraid. And he looked and said, sister, how could you be afraid? Don't you know God? She said, yes, I know God. He said, well, didn't Jesus say he would always be with us and never forsake us? And she said, no, that's not what Jesus said. He said, no. What did Jesus say? Jesus, she goes, Jesus said, lo, I will always be with you. (laughs) I have every bad joke in this sermon. Uh, God said he'll be with you. He didn't say life would always be easy. He didn't say, matter of fact, one of the promises we have is that we will have trials. James chapter one, my beloved brethren, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Not, not if. By the way, if you're having a trial right now, if you're having a time of testing, I want to tell you, you probably might be right where God wants you to be, but he promised not to leave you if you love him. For those of you right now who don't have trials or times of testing, let me tell you the good news. They're coming. They're coming. And they can make you better. Jacob is going to end up paying a price because he chooses fear in a time he should have trusted in God's promises and presence. It says in verse seven, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed and he divided the people who were with him. That's his family and all of his servants and the flocks and the herds and camels into two companies. Then uh, Jacob uh, said, if Esau comes to one company and attacks it, the other company will escape. He thinks I'm smart enough to at least only take a hit. I've got a strategy to get me out of this. It's not a good one, by the way, and, and not even one that's needed. Verse nine, Jacob then prays. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, now notice this, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. He knew God said that. And yet he's afraid and he's strategizing in ways that he shouldn't. He's trying to, in a minute, he'll be deceptive. He'll go back to being deceptive. Yet he knew God's promise. And he said, God, you said, return to your country and you realize I'll prosper you. Why wouldn't he trust the promise? Now, I want to say that not just for him, but what about you and me? You know what God has said to you and said to me, if you're in a relationship with him, he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, I won't give you anything more than you can bear. You might say, but things are hard right now. God trusts you enough, you can bear it. And you know what? God can get you through it. Uh, uh, Jesus said, nothing's impossible with God. No financial problem, no medical issue, no relational issue. Uh, All the things we worry about, God can handle it. 
And you know what God's great calling for us to understand is that he always leads in the victory in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says that. But how about one of the all-time favorite passages of all? Romans 8.28. For God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and live their life according to his purpose. If you love the Lord and you live your life according to his purpose, God promises in the end he will turn everything, no matter how dire, no matter how painful, no matter how big into something amazing in your life. And I want to say this, I, I've seen him do it. I've watched him do it in my life and Pam's life and other people's lives over and over again. And I got to tell you, it amazes me. No matter how big the tragedy, God can do it. And, and if you trust him and love him, and God says, do you trust me? You and I should not be filled with worry and fear. We need to hang on to him because worry and fear drives us to the wrong conclusion, the wrong decision, and Jacob's about to make it. By the way, why would Jacob not trust the promise of God? Look what it says in the next verse. It says this, verse 10. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and all the faithfulness you have shown your servant. For my staff only I crossed the Jordan and now I have become two companies. Why did he not trust God? Are you ready? Because he just didn't think he deserved it. Now, now, this part I want to make sure you don't miss. I think very often what happens is many of us do know God can do it. We just don't think we deserve it. Here's the good news. If you're a Christian today, you're not going to get what you deserve. I'm not saying you won't have consequences for an action in the moment. But aren't you praising God that God's never wanted to give you what you deserve? He only wants to give you his love. He only wants to give you his grace. He, he wants to work with you. You might say, but I haven't earned the right for him to work with me. Guess what? You don't have to. All you got to do is open up to him. I praise God that God is not using me based on who I am. I know some of you might be new and you might walk in and go, well, you're the pastor. I guess you're a good guy. Well, I'm trying to be, but I got to be honest. I'm a mess. And, and as a matter of fact, my past is horrible. Every now and then I'll bump into someone and they'll say, I don't even know if God can forgive me. And I'll say, I, he forgave me. And, and when I begin to share some of the things out of my past, they usually look at me going, whoa, I'm not near as bad as you. I think the elders hired me because I make them feel better about their lives. <laughs> it's not based on that. You know what it's based on? The fact he just loves you. And he can make you worthy. And Jacob's probably sitting there thinking of all the horrible things he's done and thinking, I deserve for my brother to come kill me. But God has said, I'm not going to let that happen. I'm not going to let it happen. And, and so he wasn't trusting in God's promise. Now, here's the key. He wasn't trusting in God's presence. He wasn't trusting in God's promise. And he wasn't trusting in God's power. Esau's nothing in comparison to God. Now, whenever we trust in God's presence, promise, and power, guess what you get is God's peace. A peace that passes understanding. And that's what you and I need to cling to. We don't want to go to the lower nature. Notice what happens. Verse 11, he says, Deliver me now, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers and the children. For you said, I will prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. He said, you, I know it's true, but he's, he's having this problem. Verse 13. So he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with a present for his brother Esau. Now, what he's about to do is going to cost him money, a lot of money. And he's being deceptive. So his fear is going to cost him when it didn't need to. Notice what happens here. It says, then he selected from what he had as a present for his brother Esau, 
200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels, their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. And he delivered them into the hands of the servant and every drove by itself. In other words, every grouping by itself. And then he said to his servants, pass on before me and put a space between the droves. And he commanded the one in front saying, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, saying, to whom do these belong? Where are you going? To whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, these belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present for my Lord Esau. And behold, he is behind us. And then he commanded the second and the third and all those who followed the drove saying, after this manner, you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward, I will see his face and perhaps he will accept me. Now, now, do you, you may not understand what he's doing, but he's being deceptive. He's taking pretty much everything he has and he's sending the best of what he has on, hoping to buy his way out of the problem. And, and by the way, if anything, he should have went to Esau and said, look, after all these years, I got to tell you, forgive me. He didn't do that. He wasn't ready to humble himself. What he wanted to do was act important, act strong and buy his way out. So he's sending all these huge amounts of money trying to absolve his guilt when that's not going to do it. And are you ready for this? He's also trying to make himself look powerful because if he's giving all this, what does that mean he owns? So he's trying to make himself, make Esau think, I can't attack him even with 400 men. Look at this. This is just a present. I mean, this guy's got to be powerful. And in the end, it's going to cost him all this and he didn't need to do it. How many times does fear cost us and we don't need to do it? I have a friend who, uh, what happened is, he was afraid that his air conditioner, that what he needed to have fixed was going to cost him a ton of money. So it broke and his wife said, well, we need to get it fixed. He said, honey, we can't afford it. There's no way we can afford that. She goes, we can't have no air. It's going to get hot this summer. He said, no, somehow we'll make it. And, and so his plan was to hopefully save up the money. Well, I'm not saying that's wrong, but she kept going, come on, let's do without something else. Come on, at least call the guy and find out how much it's going to be. He said, I'm not going to call the guy because I already know it's going to be thousands of dollars. I'm not about to face that. And she goes, please call him. He goes, no, if I call him, he'll come out. Then he's going to pressure us and you're going to want it. I don't want to be out that kind of money. So May comes and it gets hot. Jude comes and it gets hot. It was an intense July. She finally looked at him and said, I have a question for you. Do you want to be married? He said, okay, I'll call him. The guy comes out. He said, it's going to be about $3,500. It was his worst fear. And the guy said, man, I wish this had broken in May because you were under warranty then. Oh. Now that really honestly is very practical. How many times if we just faced the problem when we should, would we find an answer that was always waiting for us? God is telling you something here. He's telling me something here. He's saying, don't do this. Don't play a game like Jacob. Jacob does that. And he thinks it's going to get him out of it. And then what happens next is that he's sitting alone, agonizing over what's about to happen, worrying about what's going to happen. And God's had it with him. And so in verse 24, it says, then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. He's sitting there on the bank and all of a sudden out of nowhere, some guy who doesn't even know jumps him and they start wrestling. Because you, I mean, now he can't think about the problem. And they wrestle all night long. God was saying to Jacob, if you think you're going to wrestle with your problem, forget it. We might as well wrestle. And God comes and wrestles with it. By the way, this probably is God taking on a human body to come wrestle. Can you believe God would do that? I, by the way, I, I, I we'll go, won't go into it later, but God does that. God cared enough to come in the midst of his minor problems, jump in and take his mind off it by wrestling with him. And notice in verse 25, it says, when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. 
They're wrestling, wrestling, wrestling. And God thought, okay, okay, okay. Now you're about to, I'm going to get you. And he goes, boom, pow, and it pops out. By the way, God plays to win. Uh, and you can't miss that. But, but here's the thing. The Lord comes in that moment to take his mind off of it to change it from a time of agony, a time of worry, to get him to begin to understand something. And God's about to teach him. It's not in your power. It's not in your might. It's in my presence and my power and my love that you're going to be protected. And so what happens in verse 26? Then God says to him, he says, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob, which means heel catcher or deceiver. And, and he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. He goes, you're going to win. By the way, God says that to you. Are you ready? God says, you're going to be more than a conqueror. If you're a Christian, God said, I want you to be more than a conqueror. He looks at Jacob and said, no longer are you to be the deceiver. No longer are you to live that kind of life. I'm going to make you be an honest person. And you're going to live. You're going to live like you've never lived before. You're going to win like you've never won before. You're going to find God moving in your life like you never have before. Because now, rather than being Jacob, the heel catcher, deceiver, the man who trips everybody up, now you're going to be Israel, which means ruled by God or a prince of God or a fighter for God. That's who you're going to be. And God took him in the midst of his weakness and went to change him. In verse 29, then Jacob said to him, please tell me your name. And he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he, and he blessed him there. Verse 30, so Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been reserved. Then he gets up and he begins to walk. It says in verse 31, now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Peniel, and he was limping on his thigh. Now it goes on to say that that would always be a remembrance of God's presence. But what was God doing? God loved him enough to take his mind off the problems and issues. God loved him enough to refocus him on God's presence, promise, and power. Because God showed him, even though I'm letting you wrestle with me, if one touch, I could dislocate your thigh. But God did something else. He said, you're not going to walk up to Esau in power. You're not going to walk up to Esau pretending you're going to have to limp. Because you've let fear guide your life, you're going to have to limp and be honest about who you are. And you're going to have to go humbly in humility, standing there only trusting in me. You can't even run away because I've touched you that way. God said, I'm not going to let you run. I'm not going to let you pretend. I'm going to force you now to live the life you were meant to live and you're going to be better off for it. So God says to you and me, don't be afraid. He says, you trust me. You live with me. You be mine. I want to tell you today that, that that's for you. It's for me. God doesn't want any of us to live our life in fear. God doesn't want any of us to have that be who we are. He loves you too much. And by the way, if you're brand new to all this, let me tell you, he doesn't want you to be a religious person. He wants you in a very real relationship where you literally find him moving in your life in very personal ways, just like Jacob did. God says that he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross so he might have a way to him where he would adopt you as his son, his child, or his daughter. And when you go into his presence, he wants you to live life with amazing promises and amazing peace. So today, here's the question. Is that you? Are you living the life that God always wanted you to live with him and for him? And are you being who he wants you to be? And are you a person of great courage because you were made to be? And are you a person ready to do the things you were made to do? And if you've never entered into this before, here's the thing. How do you do it? Well, you, you tell him you want it. Jacob said, I'm not going to let go of you till you bless me. 
And what you need to say to God is, I want to hang on to you to you bless me. I want to be yours. Jesus even said something, though. He goes, I'm not running from you. Jesus said, I stand at the door and I knock. And if you would open up to me, I would come into you and I would embrace you and bless you and share life with you. God says, I want to not just be your God. I want to become your Abba, Father. That's what the Bible teaches your dad. And today, what do you need to do? You need to open up to him if you never have before. So here's, please don't miss this. If you're here today and you're not in a true, personal, intimate relationship with the Lord, he wants you to have it. And what you need to do is just say yes. In a moment, we're going to lead a prayer. And in the middle of the prayer time, I'm going to ask you today, if you want to have the life he has for you, say yes. That's the first step. The first step is just tell him. Today, if you're a Christian here and you're not living the life you should, or you're not as close to God as you used to be, you know something's missing. You just need to come back. And maybe you've done some things. I want to tell you, God wants you back. Maybe you've been hurt. God wants you back. Maybe you almost gave up on God. Guess what? He'll never give up on you. He wants you back. So I'm going to tell you today, if you're a Christian and you need to recommit your life, I'm going to ask you to do that too. It's a a great first step back. Let's pray. Father, I pray and ask that today we would never, ever, ever let go of who you are and your love for us. And I pray right now, Lord, if there's some people here who are afraid and filled with worry, may you literally drive it from them. May they in this moment know what's really real is you. Even if they can't see you in the moment or feel you right now, you're real and your promises are real and your trust, they can trust you with everything. And I pray that they would just feel it. So God, today I pray for those who are filled with fear of anything, it could literally leave them because you're so powerful. And you love them so much and they believe it. Father, I pray for the one who's going through a tough time. I pray they would actually find themselves conquering. May today more than ever be a turning point. And Lord, I ask right now, most of all, most of all, if there's people here who need to come to you, to give their life to you for the first time or to return, God, that they would. And I pray they would let nothing stop them from coming to you. Lord, not trying to earn it, not thinking they have to be worthy. Jesus, you gave too much just to draw them to you. And I pray right now they'd want it. They would want the love. They'd want the life. I pray, God, you'd touch them in a way they could sense it's their moment. And they're about to change. They're about to live. So God, we pray you stir. I want to ask that we keep praying. And right now, if you're right with God, I mean this. Would you pray for anybody who needs to make this? Just start praying for them. And right now, if you want to either come to Christ or come back to him, or you need God to touch you in a way to free you from all fear, to renew you, I'm going to ask you right where you're sitting to pray this prayer with me, just to whisper it. So do you want a love relationship with him? Do you want to know him? He wants you. And here's the thing. Are you ready to know him as a father? If so, let's say these words together. Say this. Say, Lord Jesus, I know you love me. And I know you died on the cross to forgive me of my sins, to heal me of my hurt and my pain, to free me from all my fears. You died to make me alive. You died to make me new. And you died to make me yours. And I say, yes, I want this. And I want you. So I open my heart to you. Please fill me with your love. 
and fill me with your spirit. And help me be who you created me to be. And help me live the life I was made to live. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer today, praise God for you. Praise God if you prayed that prayer.